0: Good
1: afternoon, everyone. The special edition of Office Hours in the afternoon with the incredible Brian Bogert. That's brian at brianbogert.com. Or you can confuse yourself and reach him on Instagram at Bogert the reverse of Brian Bogert. It took me about two years to figure this out, but I'm here and I got it down pat. That's my empty seat there in the orange, uh, but I'm here virtually in my closet as usual. But we are super excited to have the double R here. Our good friend Rob Richardson, welcome to Office Hours. How you doing, Dave? Good to be here. Oh man, we are so excited! Not only do you have the coolest green screen, uh, indicative of being the founder and CEO of Disruption Now Media, disrupt art. So I was expecting something above uh, the caliber of Brian and I in the background, and you have outdone yourself. But you know, there's so much around Web three. And you know, let me just give you a little bit of background. I'm old and I was around during web one You're season.
2: You're not old, we'll call you, you season, seasoned. there you go. But
1: I'm old enough to be around web one. And you know, I talk about uh, most of the companies uh, in 1992 when we were in the web one world, including people like Justice Scalia who told me, nobody will ever do research on the internet, uh, <laughs> that you need books to do research, David. And this internet thing, my mom said as well, is not gonna last. And of course, web one lasted, most of the companies did. Then I got into web two, and I was CEO of Samsung's first convergence device, their first smartphone in 1999 in web two. And everybody said, nobody will ever spend that much money on a phone those are way too big you'll never be able to speak in full duplex in color and video on these things it'll never happen the batteries can't last and the processing will never be up to speed and most of the companies didn't last in web 2.0 but wireless lasted and now we are here in web 3.0 and all i hear is nfts are a bunch of hype crypto will never last and the market's falling i told you so i told you so i told you so but What I like about what you're doing uh, with Disrupt Art is that you realize that Web3 is here to stay and that the companies utilizing the capabilities of Web3 are gonna last and you're dealing in the future of brands and entertainment, which we know uh, will always last as well. It's just a different platform. Uh, How do you see blockchain? How do you see Web3 applying to the future of what's critical in my business and for now media as well, brands and entertainment and the reconciliation of those two in art, music, and film.
2: Yeah, well, first of all, that's a really great setup because what you talked about in terms of the history of Web3, I guess I'm old too because I'm old enough to be, have gone through all three (laughs) of those phases too, right? (laughs) So I've been through that too. So that's why I would say season. I'm gonna go with season. Uh, But, uh, you know, if you think about human nature in terms of how folks view those innovations. So I think it was Paul Krugman is a, it was a Nobel uh, prize winning economist. I'm going to, I'm going to mess up his quote, but this is the essence of what he said. He said basically that the internet, he said something similar to what your mother and uh, Justice Scalia said, right? He said like, no one, this is not going to have any effect on the economy at the end of the day. It's not going to have any more effect on the economy than the fax machine. That's literally what he said. And obviously he was wrong. It had the greatest effect on the economy in human history.
1: I got uh, to interrupt you for one reason, oh, yeah. because I just can't help myself. And this is the kind of show you're on. So if you didn't, if you, nobody prepared you for the, the abruptness and disruption of this no, show. No, you're good. But I got to admit, man, your hands are bigger than Dr. J's. Uh, you know, <laughs> like, I'm serious. Did you see the side? What, that, what what you'll learn
3: about Meltzer is he sees shiny objects and gets distracted. It's that's the what part of his beauty, look, though, because he flows with what's in front show of him. That's he, hand
2: it, <laughs> huge. Probably, I'm probably just too close to the camera, but no, most people can't <laughs> it's uh it's a funny story, real quick. So you're making me have a good, a, good.
1: we'll disrupt the like, show completely. Uh,
2: so most people have got a chance to meet me through my podcast, especially during the uh during the pandemic, right? And then when they meet me in person. They're like surprised. Like I'm six five. They're like, "Oh my god, I thought you were short." Like you know, it's like so. I don't know. I, I come off as short on the podcast, anyway. I digress. So we uh, were
1: looking at your hands because there's nobody five foot seven that has hands like that. No, no, no. No, those fingers are too Craig, long. Craig Siegel's the opposite. That man was wearing t-shirts. I'm like, this guy's like six two and Jack. He's like five two and Jack. It was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> he looked much taller on it. Anyway, let's get back to. Getting seasoned with the history of Justice Scalia, getting ourselves back on the track with the marketplace that exists within Web3 and how you're applying the capabilities of Web3 to brands and entertainment.
2: Right. Because like you said, people had skepticism of Web1. Like you can't do business on the Internet. It's not safe. You and I live through that. I mean, I was just when I hit college. So you might have me by a little bit. But <laughs> anyway, you get the point. Then Web2, you mentioned it, but also you think about it. Web2 People were saying, that's not real media. People are always going to want to have a traditional newspaper. They're always going to want to just have a physical book. Nobody has a physical book, Carly, anymore. Some people still do it. very, But most people get their news, guess what, through social media, through Twitter, some through Facebook. Uh, And so it's hard for people to see what's in front of them, even though the trends are going clearly that way. So when I hear the same arguments about people, when they say, NFTs are a scam, no one's going to do crypto, and you know, my response is to very quickly, are there scams in crypto? Are there scams uh, in NFT? There are scams in everything. Players going to play, haters going to hate, scammers going to scam, people scam. And there's a lot of money and opportunity in this space. So it's important for you to do your research, uh, but it's too important to, to ignore the opportunity because it is going that way. Uh, and this is how brands, entertainment and data and finance are going to actually uh, uh, really get into this space. So let's talk a little bit about what that is and what that means in this space and what we see at Disrupt Art. So, uh, you know, right now, uh, a lot of the reason why there's, I think, uh, there's hesitation in the space because people think of, they think of like just an image, a JPEG, and somebody has that, why are people paying for this? But there's a lot more to it than that, you know, especially if you are tying the technology to utility. So there are four reasons why an NFT essentially will be valuable. So. High level, you know, for I'm sure we have a lot of informed people, but uh, Web three means things that are built on uh, basically blockchain technology. Using that, and I and I, I explain blockchain at the easiest level. I said it's like Google Docs without Google. There's not one organization controlling the database. Instead, it's multiple computers checking against a shared database that no one can hack. And so you think about it, it becomes a revolutionary way to share information, and then your data is protected because it's. Decentralized—that's the easiest way. Easiest way to explain it. NFTs are different, though, right? Because uh, uh, if you look at Bitcoin, that's though it was revolutionary, that that was essentially just a ledger keeping track of who owed what. That's it, right? NFTs are different. So NFTs are a digital fingerprint, just like you and I. We can't exchange our fingerprints. Our fingerprints are non-fungible. So are NFTs. Each 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 NFT is a digital fingerprint, a digital DNA in time that you cannot copy. It is unique every time it happens. The second part why it's important is that it, why it's different and why it's really impactful is this thing called a smart contract that allows you to build applications on top of this digital fingerprint to do some unique things. So let's talk about brands a little bit. So if um, I'll, I'll start with sports. I believe the Super Bowl had a uh their their ticket. I'm a I'm from Cincinnati. I'm a Cincinnati Bengals fan. So I, I love to talk about it. even though we didn't win you, for us, you gotta see us going to the Super Bowl was our day of Super Bowl. So still, <laughs> so, like anyway, I love you, so I like Cardinals. I I'm a
3: Cardinals fan, same way
2: over here. <laughs> All right, there you go. There you go. So they created an NFT out of the ticket. Why would they do that? Well, pretty simple, right? Uh go back to what I said: the NFT is a digital fingerprint. So now that could be your ticket, your unique identifier. But then, second, let's say you're a scalper which a lot of people are scalpers that pay for tickets and you go back and you resell it they get a that they can build in this application I talk about the smart contract where they get 10% or whatever each time you do that so now that's changing their business model in a way that they can get even more revenue and but so that's one easy example but for brands let's say you want to do you want to create some type of brand loyalty you want to make it very easy to have utility. There are four reasons. Again, I, I didn't get to those reasons why NFTs are valuable very quickly. Um, ownership history. If Michael Jordan owns one of our NFTs, it becomes more valuable because it's Michael Jordan, LeBron James, pick your person who you like, pick your goat. I'm not going to have that debate here, but that's one example. All right. Uh, two, uh, it's rare. And so it's something that's rare in some way. If you have, you know, maybe you only have two of these, there's only two of them in the world they're rare. That makes them valuable. And number three, it's the first of its kind. So when you do an NFT, that's the first of its kind. That can be valuable. But th- but the fourth way and the most common way and what we focused our technology on is utility, making sure the NFT is connected to real world value. So let me give some clear examples. So let's say you're a famous painter and you wanna you wanna create an NFT community that would give exclusive access to some of your paintings or your first paintings. You can do that through an NFT you sell that if you sell that access you no longer have access but that obviously goes up and that goes up in price maybe you get money back for that and the rest of the people that stay in that community the value of their participation goes up uh think of uh if prince if he was still alive if he had an nft and said okay i i will sell an NFT, i'm just going to have a create i'm going to create an nft community of whatever five thousand people and everybody that participates in this will get a chance to get backstage passes they would get a chance to help me co-create some of my music. You'll get unreleased music that no one else would get. You would get Purple Rain merch for life that only you get access to. You think that would be valuable? Absolutely, it would be valuable, right? So brands need to be thinking about this as really don't get caught up in it. Maybe we won't even call it NFTs in the future. That doesn't matter. At the end of the day, this is another, avail- this is another marketing tool that can be used. But instead of you, so people will not only give you more attention because you'll build this kind of community that's always advertising for you. As long as you create value, I have to say that it will also create you money. (laughs) Like it's an investment, done right. All of them won't go this way, but done right, uh, it will create you more money and also help your marketing. So it's another marketing tool, and it's a way that you can constantly engage with your collectors, your fans, and really they can be a part of the brand. They become almost even though they don't have equity, they kind of have community capital in helping your ba- helping your brand build. So you need to be intentional about the community that you're curating, uh, what you're going to, what's your roadmap for how you're going to continually add value. Like that's really the secret behind what the Board 8 Yacht Club did. They were kind of the first to figure out ways to create utility. They did it several ways. One through just, they knew people want to get together and get on a damn boat and call themselves apes. So, they, so people like that, right? It's fun. And only if you're a part of this community can you do that. Two, they also they also found a way to say, everybody, apes, uh, you can have some IP commercial rights and you can leverage it for commercials or whatever else. So think about how we can do this with music. You can have a you can have a random 10,000 collection with different stems and then you can then sell. Then you can give rights to to each one of your holders to actually go out there and leverage that, too. So we're just seeing the beginnings of these are just some quick examples, but we're going to see a lot of innovation for brands in this space and there is no downside to brands getting involved think about think about how cheap it was to buy a social media ad 8 years ago and, and the and the brands that got that that didn't didn't shy away from buying the facebook ads from buying the google ads they went way ahead of everybody else and now when everybody else caught up it costs so much money uh, and it is a lot harder so now is the time for brands to take advantage and at disrupt.art we we provide the technology and make it very easy to actually use to use NFTs for utilities. I love it, Rob.
3: I must be highly impressionable today because uh, Meltzer definitely disrupted my focus. Because now every time I look at you, I'm hearing all your brilliance, I'm absorbing it, I'm receiving it. But your giant hand is like all <laughs> over the screen, and it makes me want to reach out and just give you a high five so that we could just be on the same page. Um, but anyway, uh, dude, I really like everything that you just shared. I'm I'm curious. I mean, you are a disruptor to begin with. I mean, whether it's your work with uh, the University of Cincinnati's Board of Trustees, like where you guys are constantly focusing on um, innovation and hubs of technology, whether it's what you're doing with Disrupt Now Media, with everything you're doing with events, interaction, podcasts, and how you're disrupting conversations to focus on impact. Now to what you're doing today, I'm curious what sparked and motivated the disruptive pattern and drive in your life. And other than this, where are you applying that right now?
2: So my mission has been the same throughout my entire life. So to make a long story bearable, uh, I was diagnosed with ADHD early on, which is really a learning difference. It's not a learning disability, but you know, teachers I had teachers that uh, that weren't very culturally competent and weren't very uh, just didn't know how to teach to 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 to, to students that didn't necessarily absorb a book and just sit there for eight hours. Anyway, I, the light bulb went out towards the end of the eighth grade. I had a conversation with my eighth grade teacher that I'll never forget, told her all my dreams and aspirations. And she essentially told me I was going to fail. So it was no point in even <laughs> aiming that high. Uh, you know, thankfully my mother had a much better conversation and said, look, Rob, you never have to be defined by anyone's low or narrow expectations of you. You define yourself for yourself, by yourself. So, uh, I know that story turns out differently for a lot of other uh, kids. And my goal in life is to disrupt uh, like these common narratives and constructs that people find in front of them and empower people. So whether, whether it be through education or whether it be through innovation, uh, that's always been my mission. And and now I'm focused definitely on innovation because I believe Web3 is going to provide so many opportunities and I want. As many communities as possible to be involved in this and to understand the opportunity so i'm going to keep preaching preaching the gospel because i believe it's going to it's going to provide a lot of opportunities for people that are willing to listen
1: and we're willing to listen and we will have you back on other shows as well rob uh one of the democratizations of web 3 and blockchain is that we take away the old boy network we take away the middle-aged white man network which is fine by the way with brian and i uh because when we all are reset to a different platform everybody has the same experience connections, situational knowledge and relationships that can be utilized within the context uh, regardless of the religious context your sexual preference or the color of yep. your skin all the things that i've worked in my career as you have uh from jackie robinson to the clemente family to warren moon all these great things that i've been blessed to be a part of to help people identify with you know, their potential, as your mom stated to you, not necessarily what other people are limiting ourselves with what was missing, what we don't have or any separate thoughts. So uh, there's a lot more to what you do than just a disruptor of media uh, with podcasts and art and all those things. Let's disrupt the old school, the old way and create an equity and inclusion uh, where people are truly judged by the content of their skills their knowledge desire and their character uh, like some of our great leaders have suggested in the past so i'm on board with you keep on preaching my friend visit rob at disrupt.art uh, just if you want to get a peek into the future i promise you if you're a brand if you're involved in entertainment in any way this is where you want to be thanks rob for joining us
2: thank you so much for your time high thank five you, rob. <clears throat> <There you> go. <laughs>
1: high five <laughs> i knew you'd like that me He's amazing. All right. Talk about success, man. This next guest, Nick Mowbray, uh, founder and CEO of Zuru Toys, Zuru Edge and Zuru Tech. Uh, This is about an overnight success. It takes, I always say, about 17 and a half years to be an overnight success. These guys went from twenty thousand dollars to one point four billion. Eight thousand staff members, 27 offices around the world. Uh, making 2,121 countries uh, available in every big retailer as well. Nick, uh, congratulations on your overnight success. (laughs) Thanks, David. (laughs) You're you're a great icon, an example of why we were consistent and persistent in the pursuit. I always like when I see someone with the great success that you are having with Zuru, to really talk about that journey. Uh, Because there's only one thing I see in the entrepreneurs like you and its desire that you must be what you can be. uh, But you have to have infinite patience and belief. And uh, I was hoping maybe you could help me with some of the challenges that you faced when you had a perspective of time. Was there ever a moment in this journey from 20,000 to 1.4 billion to 8000 staff members, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, over what, 19 years now, were there ever moments where you said "Oh, this ain't going to happen?
4: yeah hi hi david hi brian yeah lots I of those it. moments um I, I always say you 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 kind of overestimate what you can do in the in the short term and and you um sort of underestimate what you can do in that in that long-term period so i guess those first seven or eight years we were living on people think it's a cliche but literally one or two dollars a day living in china um, and yeah, I mean, there were plenty of tough times there, but then as you sort of crack it and that flywheel gets going, it's almost like a hockey stick. So, uh, that, that compounding effect starts to happen. But yeah, in those, those, those early years, I think I moved to, to China when I was 18 with my brother, um, uh, a whole lot of naivety, uh, not a lot of money. And, uh, we just had to scrap and, and grind every day and, 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 kind of learn how to win. Um, and, and, that was the process we went through and we always had a sort of mindset around if we continue to improve, and we continued to fight every day that that eventually would get there and and I I think that kind of set us up um for for, for where we've got to today
3: I love love that I uh you know I also I one of my favorite quotes and I wish I could give credit to who it was but it's people are celebrated in public for what they've practiced in private for years you know so through the seam of everything that we've just talked about it's really about the daily consistent activities that drive towards those success and how those compound over time What I love is is in this whole theme of disruption, right? Uh, We were just talking to a disruptor right before. And that's something that Zuru has really done a long time is disrupting stale consumer goods categories and building new generation brands to better serve modern consumers. This is something you guys have done very, very well. You've tapped into innovation and creativity and disruption through automation. And one of the big things that you're focused on right now is this new revolutionary house building software. So I'd be very, very curious if you could help highlight how you've used this 17 to 20 years of overnight success to now start into a new direction and what this impact in this house building software will have within our communities across the world
4: yeah i guess and 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 i i i guess we started on the journey and in, in toys and we built i think last year we were the seventh largest toy company in the world third largest privately held i think third most profitable um toy company in the world and and toys is almost like the ultimate university you work in every material form you work at pace at speed the trends are changing constantly so so you're almost perpetually paranoid um i would say um and that sort of set us in good stead and then and then we started sort of disrupting in fmcg consumer spaces um in 2018 and that's that's growing really quickly um, for us but about about 10 or 11 years ago we were sort of looking ahead and, and saying you know in 20 years and 30 years we're going to look back and wonder how we built the same for the last you know few hundred years and we haven't really uh, evolved when it comes to construction and, and property development and, and building buildings and so uh, we sort of set about looking at, at the world and, the, and i guess the future um and, and looked at how inefficient it is today to to build and construct buildings and so uh, we, we kind of see that you know we build a lot of automation and a lot of our consumer products categories um and we build all the factories and all the software but the future of automation is being able to actually, or, or it's very easy to, um, to build something if it's just automating one thing and you're producing it over and over and over again. Um, what we're doing with Zuru Tech is we've built basically software. We've built it on Unreal Engine, which is a gaming engine, um, and you can design and build your house or any building um, on it. Uh, you can uh, stage furniture um, in it. You can go through it in real time. It's perfectly realistic. Um, And then that translate, makes digital twins of all the components. And then the factory builds it um, from start to finish. So everything, lights, fittings, finishes, everything is done on production lines by robots. So basically, we're going from an atom of material all the way through to a finished building. Uh, It ships and is uh, assembled on site. We're having to basically uh, catalog every building code in the world in every single location. Um, So it's been a big project. I think we have over 500 software um, and hardware engineers on it. We're trying to get to about 2,000 in the next sort of 24 to 36 months. Um, and we'll be able to build for like a fraction of the cost, um, for what you can build, uh, today and, and obviously far higher quality as well. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a big project.
3: And what's the motivation behind this project, you know, to be able to build a passion project outside of just building a business and creating profit, to be able to build sustainable projects at much lower cost and do it in such an automated and efficient way, there's gotta be a deeper drive and a why behind that for you to expand from toys to houses do you mind just explaining yeah. that a little bit
4: consumer goods and, and their houses yeah I, I just think we 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 looked at the world and we said how do we solve bigger problems I think we're just serial entrepreneurs and this is as big a problem as it gets I think it's something like nearly half the world's GDP is in property and construction and property development and the fact that it's been done the same forever and it's just a big problem the world needs to solve it's incredible when you look at a building it's only a few materials and it's a whole lot of air um, but the cost of it um, is, is out of control so um how do we completely up in that process from start to finish and we're filing about uh, we haven't because we want to get as close to launch as possible before we file all our IP but I think we're filing over one thousand three hundred patent claims just to put in perspective in terms of how much we've innovated so there are 16 modules everything from the wall module to the window module to the tile module um all the way through to the rebar module and every single part of that is completely automated and um and and we've innovated from scratch so you can imagine our, our tile module for doing walls and finishes you can scan in wood and it prints the wood onto ceramic tile or marble or stone or any type of finish and it prints it on the ceramic tile so our tile team is, is world leading um alone and sort of you go through each module and and we're innovating um in a big way within within each so I guess our ambition was how do we solve one of the world's biggest problems um at scale and uh, and and that was sort of the the the, the north star, if you will. Um, it has been a huge process. We actually built the factory in one fifth scale to begin with, so almost a micro factory. Um, because originally we were building these these robots and machines that were two three hundred meters long. They wouldn't work. We'd have to scrap them and start again. So to make the software all integrate with the factory, we had to we we decided to build it at a, at a one fifth scale. Um, and now we've scaled up. We've built one full size production line, which is. The factory is about three point six hectares um, in size, and once that is working perfectly, hopefully within the year, uh, then actually scaling the production is, is lots easier. It's like Elon Musk always says: like the 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 product is the factory, um, uh, and so actually scaling production is the easy part, but the hard part is actually uh, cracking it um, and and the whole mm-hmm. process to begin with.
1: Wow! I always say, you know, it's amazing how big people can think and dream and. I I sit here looking at my friend with the infinity sign and no limits. And I think about an 18 year old, I assume going with his older brother to China to figure out building a toy company and the vision that you both shared. How how much older is your brother than you, Matt? Four years older than me. So he's 22. And, uh, and then here we are 19 years later. uh, And, you know, I read the notes about the, 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 launch of the home building software and I, I look at the no limit sign behind Brian. I'm like, oh, well, there you go again, Dave. You are inspiring people to think with no limits. Your partners like Brian Bogart are talking about no limits. And I put so many limits on what my belief systems mm-hmm. were about what actually could be done. And you mentioned Elon Musk because he sees things uh, much bigger than I or Richard Branson's another guy who I'm blessed to be around who just surprised me and, you know, it's like you're looking at a guy that wants to empower over a billion people to be happy and you know some people suggest that that's insane uh but yet my vision does uh, pale in comparison to what you just uh, described to change the world uh in so many different issues and to reverse engineer social impact into a product and then a product that could be realistically scalable to change the world uh you know i I know they laugh at you scoff at you and make fun of you since you've been 18 uh but let me be the you know one of many to applaud you and if you want a construct of how to dream big and build it um you have to have infinite patience uh like nick does uh, but you have to be able to dream big and uh i congratulate you on exceeding my expectations uh and even maybe which is hard to do, exceeding my imagination. Yeah. Uh, and to to that end, I, I think as a last question, it's really important because I think that's a practice, and I'm I'm on that journey myself. I know Brian is as well because I mentor and coach with Brian and and try to stop him from limiting himself. But do you have any advice? Because you're one of the world's biggest thinkers, you you really are, and I and I mean that truly, because I'm blessed to be around some really big dreamers. Um. Do you have any advice to help people uh, kill off their limitations when you get an idea and you say to yourself, sounds really cool, but nobody could ever pull that off, especially not me.
4: Uh, Yeah. What advice
1: would you give? Yeah, I always say you either win or you learn.
4: And so it's about getting actionable insights and then having that big vision and Almost like uh, you're relentlessly pushing uh, towards it. Um, uh, I just think the power of compounding improvement, it's amazing what happens if you never flatline. And we have this mindset within our business of 2% improvement a week. So we talk about it all the time, like everything we want 2% improvement a week. Um, And if we can, not flat line and we can always improve and we can have that big vision it's amazing how quickly you actually um can get there um it might feel like a long time but when you look back on it you're like wow actually that happened pretty quickly and so i would say a relentless uh, pursuit of, of marginal gains and compounding improvement and think you think you you try and set your set your mind to and then and then having that big vision um uh, and trying to solve big problems um because ultimately, um, it's about starting that journey. And Eventually, if you, if you do continuously, relentlessly improve, you actually do get there pretty quickly.
1: It's so interesting how there's no coincidences. I just got back from Orlando where I was talking to a bunch at the Ultimate IT Growth Conference and keynoting that. I said, look, there has to be desire that you must be what you can be, but you got to know Einstein's rule of 72. And in the compound interest of behavior and attitude and, of course, finance, Uh, It's interesting if you're improving 2% every week, you'll double you'll have 100% gain in 36 weeks. And most people won't ever break it down. And they'll think, oh, it's going to take forever to get to where we want to be. Imagine with the mindset of improving 2% every week, getting to 100% improvement after 36 weeks, it still took you uh, with the belief, thinking, saying, doing and believing and feeling that belief, uh, almost 19 years. Yeah. to become one of the world's greatest entrepreneurs. Uh, unbelievable accomplishment as far as from startup to where you're at today. And that's just the start uh, at your age and your capability and your desire. I can't wait to see how many people uh, are in homes. You know, my my dream of being rich, Nick, I, I grew up with a mom, a single mom, six kids, and all I wanted to do was buy our house. Right. Like, literally, I would do anything. I still get choked up. I'm 54 years old. I bought my mom many homes. I I have exceeded expectations when I told her I would do it when I was five. And when I think about how many more people can afford to buy their mom a house, how many five year olds are sitting there in a position that I was in with their mom packing their dinner in a paper bag or utilizing food stamps or working two jobs uh, and trying doing everything to give you opportunity. That's what you're doing, yeah, and I, right. I know I get emotional about it, but I need more people in the world like Nick, uh, who can dream big and are willing to every day just continually improve at that desire. Uh, we, always, you- we always we always
4: have that mindset. And we say we suck now compared to where we'll be in the future. So we always <laughs> want to be able to look back on today and go, "Man, we were bad, we we're so bad." And we want to be able to look back every year, a year ago, and go, ah, "We weren't that good, but we're better today." And it's like kind of just that like mindset, I think, that, um, that, that drives you forward. And if you have that, that competitiveness to always improve and, and you, you embed that into your culture, um, you know, most companies flatline, most people flatline. So I think that, that's the enemy. Complacency is the enemy. Um,
3: I think it's also really important to note. And, I, you know, we are giving you lots of compliments, well-deserved compliments. But this is one last one that I want to give you because I want to make sure that it doesn't get missed. What's also very, very clear is not only are you such a big thinker, you're going to take big action, you're disciplined to the small, consistent things that you do on a regular basis. But it seems to me in talking with you, and that's why I asked that question earlier, that you're very clear on who you are. You're also very clear on who you're doing this for, who you're doing this with. And you've got a very clear vision on who you plan to impact. And you think bigger than yourself. And so you are putting people before profits, clearly, because for you to build and develop a factory over the course of 10 years to solve some of the world's biggest problems, to do it at scale, so the sustainable approach that's affordable for people to access, when you started in toys, that says a lot about who you and your brother are, and it also says a lot about who you're going to impact. And so I just want to honor you and thank you, because that kind of clarity and entrepreneurship, that kind of servant leadership is truly what creates the collective impact of a billion plus lives through what Meltzer and I are doing, through what you're doing and how we can truly change the world. And we need more people to put themselves aside and think bigger and beyond themselves, just like you are demonstrating. So thank you for all of that.
1: Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. That's awesome. I'm on my 12 year old watch this. uh, And as I pick out, you know, people who can give them directions to where they want to be. And, you know, I always say Warren Moon, who is my business partner, I say as great as a quarterback that you were, all the minority kids who are told you can't play quarterback, you're that milestone for what is actually now the possibility and probability in their lives, not some dream. Uh, you know, and yes, he had to sit up in Canada for six years and play up there and freezing Edmonton, but well worth it today when you rarely hear anyone even say black quarterback. It's just, you know, he's an idiot quarterback, he has a great arm, he's tall, he's short. Uh, but they don't use color anymore as a distinctive factor in whether you can play or not. We'll be seeing the same thing with you, Nick. I want to have you uh, on my other shows, uh, in the podcast or Apple TV or Matt or you, whoever. So if it's okay, I'd love to have Jake reach out to you and get you uh, some more exposure and awareness and work with you more because I'm just blown away. Thank you so much.
4: hundred percent. That'd be great though. Thanks for the, uh, thanks for the time. Appreciate it.
1: You got it. The incredible Nick Mowbray, if you don't know the name, Just remember, years ago, people didn't know who Elon Musk is. I have a feeling you're going to know who Nick Mowbray is if you didn't before this. Thanks so much for joining us.
4: Thank you. Thanks, Brian.
1: Right on. Wow. We had big hands and then big dreams. This is a big day, Brian.
3: It is. We got a big infinity signal here too and a big empty open seat that we need somebody else sitting here for more collective impact, brother. Jeez. I'm
1: going to fly there and come. I, I haven't seen this part of the studio, so I want to come fill that seat. We could co-pilot office hours together or breaking beyond. Uh, our next guest is a founder and CEO of Moyle Enterprises and Arielle Moyle. Uh, and she is um, here to tell us about Uh, helping individuals reach their full potential. And you could not have better timing uh, because I don't know how much of Nick you caught. Uh, When we talk about, you know, skills and knowledge being your, your basement and your desire or your uh, desire being the ceiling or your potential. uh, There's a case in point guys building from $20,000 at 18 years old to $1.4 billion. And now probably changing the entire housing industry (laughs) when they launch this incredible software Uh uh, that just blew me away. For you, when we're demonstrating uh, this potential, when we're demonstrating our desire, uh, what are some of the key components as you help so many individuals reach their potential? uh, What are some of the key components in helping people break those limitations that we put on ourselves in order to reach the potential? uh that they have
5: you know I think it's it's a couple things so one I always start with what that client is motivated by because not everybody's motivated by the same thing and so if you if you attach the same strategy to every single client it's going to fail for a good majority of them because it's not leaning into what they're desiring so ultimately when we're talking about potential it really starts with that client and i think trust as well because those vulnerabilities about someone explaining to you where they want to grow or the aspects in their lives that they want to improve upon that that requires trust within you to kind of develop that and to make sure that you come with a no judgment to that conversation So um, for me, I mean, the majority of my clients have been males in male-dominated sports. And so I think as a female, it's actually lended me an affordability to be a little bit easier to talk to, maybe compared to agents who are males where you got a little bit of that macho going on. So, you know, ultimately, I think that everybody's got strengths and weaknesses, and you really have to play to your strengths, and you have to understand that you need to have people in your corner that kind of fulfill and fill up those weaknesses. And I think that gives a well-rounded approach to you just ultimately reaching your potential.
3: I love that. You know, in reading a little bit of your background, I, I would love to hear more about some of your involvement and your backstory with organizations like American Cancer Society. Just, just to tell, let you know, I was involved with them for a very long time as a volunteer. Okay. I led the Southwest region. Uh, from a volunteer perspective for a number of years. And so that's an organization close and near and dear to my heart. But I know that you also have a lot of lessons learned around trust and female empowerment and some of the pivots that you made during COVID. And so I'd really like to hear about some of those things that have shaped who you are up until this point mm-hmm. and how that's kind of fueling the growth and direction for Oil Enterprises and what that's going to look like in the future.
5: So my biggest shape is the fact that I was a former athlete that had an injury that ended my career. And to this day, I'm still happy. I just had to have you know double ankle reconstructive surgery
1: almost three
5: years ago so i remember when that loss of identity happened it's a really tough thing to deal with um and so it actually layers into something that we're doing at moyall enterprises which is the majority of the people that are working for us or our ambitions for how we hire in the future we are trying to hire former athletes or current student athletes as interns Because as a brand who totes itself as the experts in the business of athletes, who better to run those systems than athletes themselves? And I think that oftentimes you'll get this, like I've got former clients, right, who retire and then they struggle to find a job and they get hit with. You don't have experience. And I kind of laugh at that because if anything, you know, teamwork better. You probably know discipline better. You probably know a lot of other kind of attributes that work well within business structures better than others. Having to be on a team where you're sacrificing a lot of your personal time for the greater good and a lot of those other attributes. And so we're trying to offer a place for that. Um, But in general, you know, my motivations in life really stem from kind of who I am. I've, I'm an Aries, I'm a fire sign. Like I like to disrupt things, it's it's part of my nature. Um, people often tell me I should have been a lawyer. I, I wouldn't say, uh, I wouldn't deny the fact that I, I would, I like a rebuttal and an argument sometimes. And all of that I think lends itself to this beauty about, I'm really good at negotiating. I actually tend to get players more money than expected on deals. I tend to really fight fervently in contracts. And that's really the kind of person I am at the, at my core but I'm also an oldest child of four siblings total. So I'm a leader. I've been the person that kind of has to problem solve. And I think all those elements have really done me well for being an athlete. And then how it helped me transition that athletic career that that had to stop short into a um, professional career working with athletes one-on-one.
1: And you've been blessed to work with uh, some of my closest friends and, uh blessed that those people had worked with me in in my first entree in the sports agency, at least Steinberg and uh, Bruce and Ryan Tolner, uh, Bruce especially uh, is like a brother to me. And you really helped out rep one, specifically with NIL and building that division, Mm -hmm. basketball and baseball as the vice president there. And you you understand this male dominated uh, industry. And I know uh, those two gentlemen, very well that they are here to elevate others to elevate themselves what were some of the things that you did learn in a positive way uh, from working for one of the best sports agencies in the world at rep one and two of the best agents that i know uh, because they are truly good people um, which may or may not uh, be indicative of of the space but they truly are what were some of the things that you took away from working with uh, people like bruce and ryan at Rep one that you built and took with you uh, to your new company, some of the different values that they may have had or or just character things that you uh, witnessed and learned from uh, those two two great agents?
5: Yeah, Bruce and Ryan are very kind. I don't think I've ever seen Bruce not smile. Um, He was always smiling. (laughs) I mean, I think you know exactly what I'm talking about. He always had a great demeanor and Ryan's great too. I mean, Ryan would always, anytime I had a question to ask. I think this is maybe an answer to your question. Okay. Anytime okay. I had a question to ask on the NFL side, because I, my bread and butter is basketball. That's where uh, most of my career is before rep. One, I worked for the legendary Bill Duffy, him and I were actually talking today. And I came to VP the baseball side of rep one. And then I eventually created their basketball division and then created uh, co-created their NIL vision. But As much as I understand parts of the NFL, there's a lot I didn't. And anytime I asked Ryan to explain something to me, he took the time to explain it. And Ryan's very busy. So is Bruce. (laughs) I mean, they've got, I'm going to say the statistic because I'm not sure what's happened in the last six months, but at the time that I left, I think Rep. 1 had three of the top five contracts on the NFL. That's a lot of money. That's They're the
1: only firm ever to represent the first and second pick. Uh And and at least Steinberg, we dreamed. we always said you can never have the first and second pick, let alone if they're both quarterbacks, because how would one quarterback actually trust you enough to think that you're negotiating for them because everybody wants to be number one. And these guys are so honest and kind. They actually represented Uh Goff and Wentz at the same time, and they went number one and number two, which I still think the eight first picks in the draft that Lee Steinberg had in that one and two, maybe the most indicative legendary uh, interpersonal skill that you might not see again in the future.
5: yeah and and you know part of my leadership style is very similar to kind of how Bruce and Ryan would be with me. like I tell the people that work for me either at Rep one or jobs previously or at my you know company that I created now, I don't have all the answers and especially as I get older for when it comes to marketing and digital and creative and content, the younger kids, Look, my generation created social media, but the younger generation is revolutionizing it. And if I don't pay attention to the things that they have to share with me, I'm losing ultimately, and our company is losing. And so there have been plenty of times where within the relationship with the Tallners or people at Rep One, I, you know, I was the only woman of decision-making power. It's an uncomfortable place to be sometimes for a lot of people, but I had no problem saying my piece when I thought that something needed to be considered in a different light. And your right leadership structure should listen to that instead of punishing you for it. Because again, not all of us know everything. And I think that was one of my favorite things is actually just sitting in Ryan's office and asking him questions and just trying to learn the internal structure of the NFL better than I did. And I really appreciated that he always was welcome and willing to nurture that curiosity and to teach me what I didn't know. And again, Bruce was always the perpetual cheerleader with a smile on his face. I, I love Bruce. Exactly. So Ariel, one more
3: question. I, I, yep. I love the way you articulate stuff and you have been working with obviously these industry giants and in, in mm-hmm. what you proclaimed and everybody knows is a male dominated industry. You are rising, okay. you're establishing your own, you're very pro female empowerment. So I'm mm-hmm. curious two things. One, what is the legacy and mark you want to leave in this space? And two, is there a message for younger females, younger women or little girls? I'm a father of a daughter and I'm always doing everything I possibly can to make sure that she knows that women can rule this world and they can do anything and everything oftentimes better than most of the men can. So I'm really curious so that you can kind of close this out really strong with you, Ariel. Let us know, like, what's the mark you want to leave and what's the message you want little girls to hear from you?
5: Despite the positives that I've had at agencies, there was also a lot of negatives and I'm always going to be transparent about that. And especially as the only women sitting at every single job I've had, except for when I worked at BDA, it gets really exhausting. At the end of the day, I left to take some time for myself, but I also left to do better for women. And the explanation I give to that is the following. I have been representing some of the largest male athletes in the world for almost 17 years. And what that allowed me to do was to be able to get into rooms that most representation can't get into. For females, it's much different if you're emailing the head of a major business, when you're talking about an obscure female athlete versus when you're pitching Ronald Acuna Jr. Someone's going to answer my email. So what that's allowed me to do is build relationships, within these companies and these teams leagues etc because of the male athletes and now i can transition that to do better for females overall because i have those relationships established and what i hope that does is inspire other people like myself or agents who maybe have never considered to work with women please take the benefits that you get working with male athletes and give female athletes a bit of that too I actually think it's really interesting that we're having this conversation today when Naomi Osaka just decided to leave IMG to create her own agency. And part of the narrative as to why she said, I always did what I wanted to do even though people told me it wasn't the right way. Well, she's the highest paid female athlete. So maybe she had a better idea and design and people were not just listening to her. So at Moyal Enterprises, we're trying really hard to we have male clients and we have male you know, athletes, but we're trying really hard to take a more aggressive approach to female athletes and female backed businesses and do better for them than what representation has allowed in the past. And that's really my goal in terms of your daughter and any woman who is trying to enter this field. I think my biggest advice for you is to find a female mentor. Um, I didn't find one until I was 29 and that was Nancy Lieberman and it, and I was working in sports since I was 18. So for 11 years I was having these experiences that I didn't know if they were a me problem or if it was a systemic issue. And so you find comfort in finding those people above you that have had those similar experiences because then you get a gut check that is really impossible to find otherwise. That gut check leads to empowerment, confidence, and a lot of other really beautiful, you know, you know, co-attributes after the fact. And that's a big reason why I now mentor many students and a lot of them are women in particular because I wish that I had a female mentor earlier. So don't be afraid to tap into and reach out to women like myself or other women who might be able to give you a learning lesson or two before you have to learn it yourself.
1: I love it as a dad of three daughters who are Amazing. playing around in the industry that we've been in for years. I certainly uh, will send them your way as you're looking for more interns as well. I would love them yeah. to be able to learn from you. And the easiest way to get to where you want to be is to ask directions from someone that's already there. And you are there. So appreciative of you taking the time to be with thank us. Thank Arielle. you. Yeah. Check out Moyal Enterprises. Ariel, thank you so much for joining us.
5: Thank you guys. I appreciate you. you having me on. Take
1: Bye. care. What an honor. Oh man, we're blowing it up today. I'm so glad I asked you to be here today with me. Uh, not bad guess, huh?
3: Not bad guess. It's been a really fun one today.
1: Oh, we'll yeah, finish. Poor, really poor, poor,
3: Mike Diamond with what he's dealing with. But, uh, but I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be <laughs> Mike,
1: here. Mike, Mike, who? You know yeah, you,
3: exactly. <laughs> it's, like,
1: it's like Wally Pip when Wally Pip uh, went out sick. You know, there was this young guy, Lou Gehrig, that took his place in Wally Pip was never seen again on first base, so uh, we may have to let Mike show up only if he can fill the orange chair. It might be all three of us. I love having you here. Thank you, Brian Bogert at Bogert Brian or Brian at Brian Bogert. I just like practicing that. Anyway, Rob Schneider's in the house, not the comedian, but the chief content <laughs> development and strategy officer of Learfield. Once again, a leader uh, in uh, our space here of the leading nations leading collegiate properties, um, unbelievable properties. So we have an expert uh, here today to talk about uh, the changes that are occurring as a chief content and development strategy officer with such big properties. Uh, There's probably no place, uh, Rob, that I've found that has changed more in the last three years. Than than your space, uh, content, media, co- collegiate rules, holy lamole. How are you dealing <laughs> with the accelerated change uh, in such a big way with such big properties?
0: Oh wow! Uh, I, I, and well, first of all, thank you so much for having me here, David. Brian, great to see you. Um, yeah, I, you know i I had the privilege of uh, you know ten years ago before even being involved in sports and. And being at the forefront of digital marketing and a lot of what happened with programmatic advertising and i thought that was a disruptor in in the world and, and you know, what we've seen in college over the last uh, three four years with the with the pandemic with uh nil name image and likeness with uh, new types of content uh like nfts uh with sports wagering uh, the list goes on Esports. and on and on. <laughs> Esports. E- and, and college has really been at the nexus of so many of those things. And, you know, I think all, all of the, the changes that we're seeing, um, I don't think anyone is surprised by them in, in general that they're happening. I think the fact that they're happening as quickly as they are and all at the same time has, uh, has just led to, you know, um, a lot of uncertainty. But you know that that's why Learfield, uh, you know, is the company that it because Is we're we're able to 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 create some uh, some simplicity and uh, and a path forward in, in a pretty complex environment because certainly college is already complex before any of those other things just uh, descended upon us. So you know, trying to be a good partner, trying to be a consultative partner, uh, and trying to you know lean in and, and, and really see what's happening out in the marketplace and and, and putting the the college spin on it because colleges. Obviously, a pretty unique environment.
3: Yeah. First, I also want to say uh, thank you for your service. I know that you served in the 82nd Airborne Division for the U.S. Army, and so I, I don't. I want to make sure that we acknowledge that. That's never something that I take lightly because our freedoms, our ability to live the way that we do with no limits in so many situations, is because of individuals and families that have served. So I just start by saying that. Um, second, Appreciate I mean, that. you have you have a really decorated past, you've done a lot of incredible things. I mean, you've been acknowledged for a lot of your work in sports and you are looked at as a lead strategist in areas around growth, development, sports, media, entertainment, and you speak at many, many conferences. And so I'm always really interested to hear how people view strategy around growth and development. So if you had one or two nuggets that you believe are some of the core foundational strategies that Will develop in growth and development, independent of industry or people. What might those be?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the biggest thing actually is the sort of your last point. There is independent of industry or, or category. It, it, you know, the the best lessons learned are not necessarily learned when you're just looking within your own four walls. You, you got to be curious. You got to get out there. You never know where inspiration can come from. You know, in so many businesses, at the end of the day, it's all about the consumer, the client, the fan, um, and, you know, what's happening in the, in, in terms of moving the needle for that end consumer, that end fan um, c- can uh, come out of so many different places. And, you know, I think sports has been very fortunate, very privileged that its foundational product is so strong. I mean, there's you know nothing that people are more passionate about than, uh, than sports and in particular, college sports. So, you know, when, when I go through the airport, I don't see people wearing Facebook or TikTok shirts. You know, they're wearing <laughs> the shirts of the schools that, that they represent, but that, that's also a double-edged sword because because it has been such a good product that it hasn't had to evolve as quickly as the newspaper industry or a or consumer package is a good company that's trying to convince people that one brand of soap is different than a, uh, another one um and so i think a lot of the lessons that those other industries had to learn a decade ago are very relevant for the sports world but haven't been lessons that they've had to learn until Mm -hmm. now until all these things are converging around different consumer behaviors you know certainly the pandemic has accelerated a lot of that so you you need to take yourself out of your own context and, and kind of you know put put your own Fan hat on your own consumer hat on and think and, and think about what experiences matter to you and how does that translate to the context that you're in and that's definitely true in sports but I think that's true in just about any industry you know taking yourself out looking at lessons learned from other places and trying to pick the the nuggets that that make sense for for your particular situation.
1: And Rob, to, to finish up, uh, you know, you represent a Learfield like the top collegiate properties, you know, there's 89 championships alone in the NCAA, football conferences, colleges and universities. And a lot of people may or may not know, not just with NIL, uh, but just in the context of branding where someone like a David Meltzer, who has represented the biggest names in sports, now has his own brand that, you know, people would want to actually take a picture with me. Um, And that may sound silly, but it's not Uh, very silly when you have to deal with the pressure that now is put on these big organizations uh, because they have to consolidate they have to consolidate pressures of different leagues teams and organizations and then down to the individuals in the individual sports where now there's a lot more power distribution than there was when you and I started in the business. It was quite easy uh, when the NCAA had all the power. Now you could have a second string water polo player with 9 million people following them and can actually derive more revenue uh, than water polo was ever in the history has ever derived for the college. How are you dealing with this very micro influencer with such exponential power compared to what used to be a consolidation and a cohesion of mm-hmm. all the schools together in leagues, teams, organizations, and championships. We're getting very, very disparate and it's dissolving a lot of the traditional power. That's hard to brand.
0: Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And I mean, I, and I think college is probably always a little bit more fragmented than, than maybe it had appeared, but certainly to the extent that there is, you know, unification around organizations like the NCAA, et cetera. I mean, I think all of those things are gonna look very, very different. Uh, you know sooner than we think uh, sooner than you know we may think they will. Um, but to your specific you know points around name image and likeness and now the fact that student athletes are finally able to uh, you know monetize uh, th- those assets, which I, I think is a, ultimately a great thing, It certainly does change uh, the dynamics. U- ultimately, I think it, it, it sort of expands the uh, relevancy of college sports. For uh, for advertisers and sponsors, um, because oftentimes you know the athletes, especially in aggregate, have more social media followers than perhaps the official athletic department accounts, and you know, and, and have a, a different type of engagement with the fans that sponsors are, are looking to um uh, to leverage. But I I think it's additive, um, because the IP of the schools. Uh, still really matters in the context of relevancy for, uh, for the fans, even if it's something via a student athlete. There's always going to be exceptions. There are uh, you know, student athletes that are amazing content creators in their own right and you know, would have a, uh, a career as a content creator, regardless of the fact that they were a student athlete. But there's many more student athletes that, you know, maybe the, the starting quarterback or the starting forward or, or, or whatever it may be, but walking down the street, you know, not in uniform, not, you know, sort of representing the, the schools that they play for, less impactful. But you, you combine the human element of that student athlete with the brand affinity of the college uh, intellectual property. And I think you have a really powerful um, combination in that—a really, you know, powerful way to enhance the engagement of fans, and ultimately, I think, bring more dollars into the ecosystem for both the schools and the athletes. So, so far, we're we're seeing a, a, a win-win as far as brand engagement in NIL is concerned.
1: Yeah, I think raising the awareness, anywhere with the size, scope, and scale of audiences that were undiscovered. And probably overlooked as well, creates great opportunities for people like you and I. Uh, absolutely fascinating, Rob. Congratulations, though, on all of the great things and great honors that you've received. And you're so young, I look forward to many, many more uh, and seeing you in many more places, sharing stages with you, uh, especially in the sports fields of esports and all the new uh, revenue streams that are available. We certainly appreciate as well the service that you've given Brian and I and our country and the freedoms to afford us to do this show and to have great minds sharing and elevating others. So Rob, it's such a pleasure. Thanks. Join us again. Okay. Yeah.
0: Really appreciate it. Thank you guys.
1: See you soon. Take, Take care. care. brother. Uh, Rob Schneider, just finishing out the cleanup hitter here. Uh, if uh, I'm not sure he saw all the guests before him, but if, Uh, He knew the crowd he was keeping today and he uh, held his own and and the loaded bases hit it out of the park. So it's always fun here. B, just like we do on Breaking Beyond, uh, takeaway of the day, I uh, can't imagine what it is. What do you got, bro?
3: Man, what hit me is everything obviously today was around disruption and innovation, but what struck me was the difference and neither one is good or bad, but the difference in reactive disruption and innovation, because it was a need. Based on where the industry was headed versus a proactive want and desire for change or to solve some of the world's biggest problems. I think that the energetic connection to disruption and change materially changes based on if it's a reactive or a proactive approach. Neither one is bad, both are necessary, both create incremental, consistent, and profound change. But it was really interesting to me to see that dichotomy play out today because I think that every one of them was a disruptor or an innovator, some by need. Some by situation that then took initiative to be proactive. And that I just thought was a really clear takeaway for today.
1: Well, I thought you brought the takeaway for the day um, beyond the size, scope, and scale of Rob Richardson's hands. Um, I thought the biggest takeaway uh, was the only thing that should die in our lifetime is our limitations. And, you know, Rob Richardson was given a ton of limitations. And yet here he's disrupting uh, media itself and creating great change. I think unbelievable Nick Mowbray uh, talk about killing off limitations, twenty thousand dollars to one dollars $1. third largest toy company in the world and now you know changing the face of housing. Uh, Ariel, woman sports agent limited uh, in all beliefs, and I want to give kudos to my Tolner friends over there that uh, supported uh, the transformation. Uh, In the leadership that they provided REL in a space that there's not enough of that representation. And of course, to finish up strong, Rob Schneider uh, in every aspect of what he's done, fighting for our country and the limitations that others put on our country, the freedoms that we have, all the way to what he's been doing at Learfield. So uh, no limits is apropos, and I'm so blessed to have you. Thank you for joining me. I'm sure you'll be back again. Brian Bogert, brianbogert.com, at Bogert Brian. You could catch him. He's a man without limitations. Nobody carries uh, himself with such great knowledge, wisdom, and energy. What a blessing you are to be in my life, my friend. Thanks for joining me here on Office Hours. Thank you, brother. Great job. All right. I can't say too much uh, that we haven't said already, but uh, if you need anything, we got our free training on Friday, david at dmelter.com. We're approaching 65,000 people registered for free training for over 22 years. Overnight success in 22 years. That training has been and it has gotten huge. I have no idea what uh, Matt has in his hands, but he's stretching it like Aquaman. Uh, anyway, be more interested than interesting. Be kind to your future self and do good deeds. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great night.